Will you join me by taking your Bibles and turning to Paul's epistle to the Romans? We come again to our study in verse 7 of chapter 15. And we will be looking at verses 7 through 21. I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Accept and Admonish One Another. And the reason for that title will become abundantly clear as we look at the text this morning. Let me read it to you. Romans 15, beginning with verse 7. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles and I will sing to thy name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I also, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles ministering as a priest the gospel of God that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul has devoted all of chapter 14 and the first 21 verses of chapter 15 to the issue of the unity of the church, unity in the church. Obviously, this was a big issue, an important issue, as well it should be. And we read about this in other places in the New Testament as well. Unfortunately, church unity is like good health and physical conditioning. Everybody wants it, but few do what is necessary to achieve it. Let me remind you of the context here again. Paul was not the founder of the church at Rome. 
nor had he ever even visited them. Although, according to chapter 16, we see that he knew a number of them personally. But the inspired apostle knew full well of their godly reputation. Even though there were Jews and Gentiles in there that were uh, fighting amongst each other for various issues that we've talked about in Sunday's past, but he knew that they were godly people that loved the Lord, but he also knew about the problems of unity. It was a doctrinally sound church, as we will see, but it was prone to bickering among one another over non-essentials, over gray areas that God neither commands nor condemns. However, some were convinced otherwise, well-meaning folks that, that loved the Lord, but simply could not grasp their full liberty in Christ. They remained shackled, therefore, to certain self-imposed religious restrictions, and they were prone to criticize and condemn those who disagreed with them. They were primarily in the minority, but these people, as you will recall, he called the weak. And then those who understood and enjoyed their freedom in Christ were called the strong. They were the majority, but they were also prone to criticize and condemn the weak. And sadly, the same kind of infighting occurs in many churches, and when it does, it brings dishonor to Christ, and it undermines the power of the gospel. Meaning, when the world looks at that, they say, boy, so much for your transforming gospel. You people are just fighting amongst yourselves. It certainly distracts us from what is really important, and that is the proclamation of the gospel to the lost and living a gospel-centered life. I've learned very quickly over the years, or I should say I have learned over the years to very quickly deal with these things and decisively deal with them when there's bickering over non-essentials in the church because it can just cripple the church. It can distract you from the things that are most important. And it certainly betrays how out of whack our priorities can can get. And unfortunately, misplaced priorities in a church will breed like fruit flies. So you have to deal with it. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Now, in our text this morning, I wish to emphasize three great truths pertaining to Christian unity that I hope you will never forget. We need to, number one, accept one another. Number two, admonish one another. And number three, remember what you know. This is a very instructive passage, and I pray each of you will learn and apply it to your life. And fathers, I pray that you will teach these things to your children, as you should everything that you learn from the Word of God. Now, you will recall in verses 5 and 6, we're told basically to rejoice in unity, and Paul interrupts his his, his call for unity between the weak and the strong, and he prays in verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, beginning with our text this morning in verse 7, he is going to summarize that statement with a very positive command, and here it is, Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So this is the first truth that we must grab hold of in our lives. Accept one another. 
Notice this is the same admonition he gave to the strong in chapter 14, verse 1, but now he gives it to the weak as well. He uses the same word, except, in both verses 1 and verse 3 to define how believers who may differ with each other on some things, on non-essentials, need to treat each other. The term accept, as we have studied before, comes from a Greek word that means to receive or welcome a person as a desired guest. We would treat that person with joy and compassion and without any reservation. It literally, literally carries the idea of welcoming a person into the realm of your friendship, into the realm of your fellowship. It is the same word used to plead with Philemon when Paul pled with him to graciously take back his runaway slave, Onesimus, to, he says in Philemon 17, accept him as you would me. So that gives you the idea of the term. And this certainly begins with the whole idea of of just getting to know a person with whom you may differ on some non-essential, especially somebody that perhaps you've harbored some bitterness towards. Getting to know them beyond kind of the the bump and run, grip and grin type of thing that you do before or after church. But pastor, the guy is so off base with those weird hang-ups he has about things that you can and can't do on Sundays, I just don't think I can do that. Well, really? Well, you will recall that Apollos was also off base on some things in Acts 18, verse 26 when he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But do you remember Priscilla and Aquila took him aside? Proslambano, it's the same Greek word. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That's the idea. But, Pastor, I, 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 I just can't accept him. I mean, he, he drinks wine with his meals. And his wife wears slacks to church. And she uses birth control rather than trusting God. And she sends her kids to public schools. You get the idea? All these things that we come up with. I would ask you, where do you see the word unless after accept one another? Well, Pastor, I can't because she waves her hands during the worship service just trying to attract attention to herself. Pastor, I can't accept them because he doesn't use the King James. I can't because she thinks amplified guitars are of the devil. My friends, this type of foolishness is what's of the devil. We are to accept one another. What must the world think when they see that kind of stuff? This is a call to self-sacrificing love. I want you to think about it. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, set aside His glorious attributes and all of the splendors of heaven to come to this earth to seek and to save the lost. And He loved you and He loved me. While we were yet sinners, He even died for us in our state of rebellion, in our our state of maniacal love for self. He dies for us, yet we can accept others unless they agree with us? Especially over things that God neither commands or condemns? 
As I was meditating on this, I, I thought of what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He said to sinners, come unto me. He went on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You know, many times we say to other saints just the opposite. Stay away from me unless you wear my yoke and learn from me, for I am controlling and proud at heart. Dear child of God, we are blood-bought saints united to Christ. We are members of His body, the church, the most sacred assembly on earth. We shouldn't be like toddlers in a Sunday school class. And thankfully, for the most part, we're not here at this church, even though there are times where we all are prone to act this way. Accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Do you realize how arrogant it is to reject others who God accepts when He accepts you with all of your sin? I mean, think about that. That is really out of whack. And do you realize that when we accept one another, we are accepting Christ Himself? Now think about that. Jesus said in Matthew 10:40, He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives Him who sent me. Beloved, Remember that our motive for accepting those with whom we may differ on non-essentials is the glory of God. And think about it, Christ accepts us, though we differ with Him on the essentials. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. How many of us do that like we should? None of us. And yet we are still accepted. Why does He do this? He does it for the glory of God. To demonstrate His transforming grace in our lives. So when we love without partiality and accept one another without condemnation and condescension, we put the glory of God on display. We put the transforming power of the gospel on display so that others can see how we love one another. And they can say, wow, there's something about those people then the Holy Spirit uses that testimony to soften hearts so that others can believe, repent, be saved. So we are commanded to pursue fellowship with those with whom we may differ on some discretionary matter of personal conviction. Not condemn them, not ignore them. Let me make it real clear. If there's somebody in this church that you've harbored bitterness against, Because they don't agree with you on some non-essential. What are you supposed to do? Accept them. And that's a whole lot more than just, you know, shaking their hand before Sunday. It's the idea of welcoming them into the realm of your friendship and fellowship. However the Lord may cause that to happen. And you need to pray to that end. That's how unity is developed and protected in the church. I talked with a man, it's been a couple of years ago, who said he grew up in a church... And he absolutely hated it. He was a non-believer. He said, I want nothing to do with the church. He said, no offense to you, but he said, I've had it with churches. And I remember one of the things he said, all the people do in the church are fight amongst each other. And he told the story of how his dad came home from a deacon's meeting with a broken nose and a black eye. 
And he said, you know what they f- were fighting about? And of course, I, I, I was thinking, well, obviously I don't, but I can imagine because I've heard stories like this so many times. They were fighting over choir robes and an organ. Some wanted the robe, some didn't. Others wanted the organ and some didn't. And you see the impact that it had on that young man's life. Actually, he was older when I was talking with him. Obviously, that exposes a lack of shepherding. It, 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 it's a total rejection of what Paul said in verse 19 of chapter 14. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. But my friends, it is also an utter disregard for what Paul is teaching here, as well as his admonishment to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 32, where we are told to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I think of all of the millions of dollars churches spend on evangelizing the lost in other parts of the world. And frankly, I'm not saying you give up on this, but with very little effect. Think how much more effective we would be if we all got serious about accepting one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And then Paul continues by giving a series of Old Testament illustrations to show how Christ accepts both the Jew and the Gentile. And this would especially speak to uh, the Christian Jews who were in the church who struggled with accepting their Gentile brothers as God has accepted them, consistent with his plan of redemption all along. And he begins by reminding the Jewish believers uh, about God's faithfulness in fulfilling his covenant promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. What a marvelous illustration of God's gracious acceptance of a rebellious people. But not only did Christ become a servant to the Jew, but also, verse 9, to the Gentile. He says, for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Now, although God first uh, established his covenant with the Jewish patriarchs and the people of Israel, it was God's intention from the very beginning in his divine decree to extend mercy to the Gentiles as well. So the point here is is the, the Jews within the church have absolutely no basis for pride or for prejudice. This was all part of God's plan. I must digress for a brief moment with an important footnote. We must understand there is spiritual unity and salvation between Jews and Gentiles. Certainly in Galatians 2.14, Paul says that he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. But we must also understand through Scripture that this unity and salvation does not nullify identity, and function. Israel does not become the New Testament church, as some would argue. Gentiles don't become Jews. Jews don't become Gentiles. In fact, as we look at Scripture, we see that Jewish believers still retain 
their ethnic identity and their ordained function. There still exists, for example, a future role for Israel as a nation. The nation Israel will be both saved and restored with a unique identity and function in a future millennial kingdom upon the earth. But Paul's point here is very simple. Believing Jews should rejoice in Christ, who is God's servant, who came to confirm the promises that God gave to their forefathers. And the Gentiles should rejoice in the undeserved mercy that God has also extended to them through Christ. We as Gentiles are the wild branch that has been grafted into the root of covenantal blessing. Now, to corroborate what he has just stated, he offers four Old Testament quotes which represent all three divisions of the Old Testament. Very important concept, especially in dealing with the Jewish brethren. His first and third are from the book of Psalms. The second is from the law and the fourth is from the prophets. So this is a very compelling and comprehensive body of divine evidence. First, in the end of verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 1849. There the psalmist declares, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. Second, in verse 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32:43, where the Gentiles now are summoned to join in with Israel in praising God. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And then third, in verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 117.1, where the Gentiles are summoned independently to praise God. He says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. I think that would probably include most all of us here. And then fourth, in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah 11.10, where the prophet speaks to the Gentiles concerning the hope that is theirs because of Christ, who will one day rule over them. There he says, and again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse. By the way, Jesse was the father of David, through whom the Messiah eventually came. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So, with this irrefutable evidence of God's predetermined plan to use his covenant people, the Jews, to help save the Gentiles, to help bring them to himself for his glory, there is no justification for any Jew to harbor resentment towards any Gentile, and vice versa. So, he says, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Having written this, Paul bursts forth into a marvelous benediction that really summarizes the priority of praise over prejudice. He says in verse 13, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Implied in these words especially in this context, is something like this. Folks, focus on the priority of the gospel, not your personal preferences and cultural, religious ideas on non-essentials. Accept one another. Then he moves to another essential for Christian unity. Number two, admonish one another. Notice verse 14. 
And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Notice the terms that he uses. The term goodness speaks of morality. He's saying here that you Roman believers are full of virtue. You're full of moral integrity. This is the fruit of walking in the spirit and walking in the light of divine truth. But also he says you're, you're filled with all knowledge. This speaks of doctrinal discernment. They understood the word of God. They had an accurate intellectual grasp of the gospel of Christ. Said a little bit differently, they were a doctrinally sound church. They were being transformed by the renewing of their mind. So think about it. He's saying to these believers in Rome that they were blood-bought, spirit-wrought, spirit-taught, spirit-empowered saints. And as a result, they were equipped to do something. What is that? To admonish one another. The term admonish in the original language is nuthetao. You've heard of nuthetic counseling. That's where it comes from. And it means to instruct or to warn, even to encourage. And it comes from two Greek words. It comes from the word nous, which is the word for mind or comprehension. And added to that is the word tithemi, which means to put or to place or to lay something. It conveys the idea, therefore, of putting someone's mind or understanding in the proper path. So the Roman believers had all they needed to admonish or counsel one another. They were therefore competent to instruct, to warn, to encourage one another toward further godliness. And the same can be said of every child of God, every believer who is full of moral goodness, who is doctrinally sound, spirit-led, all of us are called to admonish one another. Practically speaking, counseling belongs in the church, not in the office of some secular psychologist who has no understanding of sin, who has no understanding of the human heart, who has no understanding of the power of the Word of God and the Spirit to remedy the issues that man deals with. Biblically, man has two kinds of problems, spiritual problems and physical problems. There is no third category called psychological problems. We do not have personality disorders. We have worship disorders. Our hearts are deceitful. They're desperately wicked. Even as believers, we remain incarcerated in this unredeemed humanness, and our flesh can manifest itself in a myriad of ways. Our sin can manifest itself in a myriad of ways. Secular psychology can be very helpful in the realm of physical problems, in the realm of things like organic brain disease, head injuries, learning disabilities, all those kinds of things. And I would also quickly add that they have done a remarkable job in categorizing various ways sin manifests itself in human behavior. But they just don't understand that the issue is spiritual. It's not psychological. So they can't offer 
any real help. They can't give any real hope, nor can they affect any lasting change that ultimately causes a person to live to the glory of God. They are not full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, because they do not have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. So they are not, shall we say, equipped to admonish, to instruct, to warn, to encourage. But the saints are. The saints are. Sadly, even much of what passes today for Christian counseling is nothing more than a Christian who prays before he or she counsels using some of the various secular theories of psychology. Beloved, we must remember the authority and the power, the sufficiency of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit to use His Word and to use His people. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. In other words, it can do something here. What can it do? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Therefore, as Christians, we can rely on the authority and the power and the sufficiency of Scripture to address any kind of problem that does not have a physical etiology. 2 Peter 1.3, we read, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now, as in every Christian ministry, some believers are more gifted, some believers are more trained than others to admonish their brother. But again, we are all called to do this. Hopefully, as parents, you're admonishing your children. Hopefully, husbands and wives, if you see your spouse doing something that is dishonoring to the Lord, you will come along and try to instruct and to warn and to encourage them. Those in various capacities of Christian ministry should constantly be admonishing those under their care. But sadly, I believe that this is one of the most disregarded commands in all of Scripture. Too often we as believers see our brother, our sister in Christ, living in some kind of sin, they're destroying themselves, they're destroying their family, um, their, their life is in shambles, and we say nothing. At least not to them. Well, we'll say something to others like, well, that, you know, that dude really needs counseling. That gal's really messed up. Man, that guy's a moron. You know, we say all of these types of things, but we don't obey for example, what Paul said in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. He goes on to say that we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. To bear the burden here is the burden of sin. This person is weighted down by sin. You're to come alongside and to try to help them before that sin crushes them. And that fulfills the law of Christ. What is that? That we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. This is what love looks like. So Paul encourages the Roman saints, those who were characterized by by moral virtue, who had a sound grasp of the word of God, 
by telling them that they were competent to counsel. So they should admonish one another. Again, a command that extends to every every Christian who walks faithfully by the Spirit. And I might add, especially in this context, that this is absolutely crucial for there to be unity in the church. If this is not happening, everything begins to fall apart. But notice another interesting truth tucked into the next verse, verse 15. He says, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. That phrase is interesting, the original language. It means as putting you in mind. In other words, he was reminding them only of what they doubtless knew already. This leads me to my third point. Not only are we to accept one another and admonish one another, but we are to remember what we know. And he gives some examples here. He talks about how he wrote to them very boldly. And again, in order to remind them of things they already knew. You will recall that he boldly warned them in chapter 6 of not falling back into the slavery of sin. In chapter 8, he warned them of the dangers of living according to the flesh and not putting to death the deeds of the flesh He warned them about the importance of being led by the Spirit. I can jump to chapter 11. He warns them about pride and prejudice on the part of some. And then in chapter 12, he challenged them to present their bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God. He warned them not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of their minds. He warned them not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And then in chapter 13, he issued warnings about being in subjection to the governing authorities. And in chapter 14, he warned them about how the strong should stop making fun of the weak and the weak should stop condemning the strong. But he did not do these things because these people were clueless about them, because they had never heard of them, but because they needed to be reminded Remember, they were already full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. They had a solid grasp of Scripture. They just needed to be reminded. Beloved, this is true of all of us. We need to be boldly reminded of the things that we know to be true. Why? Because it is so easy to forget. Because it is so easy to become so familiar with certain truths of the Word of God that they become meaningless to us. We just kind of overlook them. Isaiah indicted Israel for so quickly forgetting God's truth. In Isaiah 17.10, he says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Jesus admonished the apostles in John 15.20 to remember the word that I said to you. And I have to laugh. I love Peter. I think I see myself in him. Peter must have known how important this was in his life because he mentions it four times, just right at the very beginning in Second Peter. He speaks of the blessings of our salvation, the essentials of our spiritual life, and he says in, in verse 12 of chapter 1, therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Underscore that. Stir you up. 
It means to arouse someone completely. To thoroughly awaken someone from spiritual lethargy and sleep. He wants us to wake up from our muddle-headed laziness and become spiritually alert. You know, folks, if you're honest with yourself, your flesh and my flesh is lazy. It's just lazy. And it hears things and it sets certain things aside that we don't want to hear because it might be a little uncomfortable to do that because we have some pet sin that we want to maintain. So we get lulled to sleep by the world, by the flesh, by the temptations around us. <laughs> In verse 15 of chapter 1, he went on and he said, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am, here it goes, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. My friend, I don't care how much truth you know. I don't care how spiritual you are, how mature you are. You need to still be reminded daily of the wonderful truths of the Word so that it stays fresh, so that you do not lose your awe of God, so that you do not become spiritually lethargic, so that your worship is constantly being stimulated, so that you will walk faithfully with the Lord. That's why the Word of God tells us over and over again how important it is to meditate on the Word. Are you doing that? That's how you are reminded And certainly in this context, these constant reminders are necessary to challenge us in the area of Christian unity, to remind us, as I'm doing today, to accept one another. That's not something where you're, you're saying, you know, I, I never heard of that before. Admonish one another. Wow, really? I, man, I, didn't, think, I didn't think I was supposed to do that. Well, that's what the, that was what the pastor was supposed to do. I mean, some of you may have been ignorant. You're not going to be after today. But for most of you, you already knew that. You just need to be reminded. Paul offers some important words of reminder to them next and as he closes this section. Again, not being their spiritual father, he closes this section by reminding them of his divine calling as an apostle on, on their behalf and by implication underscoring just the supreme importance of heeding what he has written. Notice verse 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The grace that was given me from God is a phrase that speaks of his divine gift of apostleship. He was called, he was gifted he was empowered to proclaim the Word of God with full authority. And because of this, he was under divine compulsion to obey and serve the Lord, quote, according to the grace given to me, Romans 12, 6. That's why he says in verse 16, that because of this grace, he is to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He uses the term priest here in a figurative way. 
to picture his role of bringing an offering to God. What is the offering? Believing Gentiles. It was, therefore, by implication that he says that ultimately because of his calling, because he was commissioned, it's because of this that I can boldly remind you of these things that are so important. Now, think with me for a moment of the stunning changes that took place when he brings the, the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. Gentiles who were formerly excluded from the holy place and the holy space of the temple. Because of Christ, the old barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles were torn down. And the Gentile believer becomes the offering in the most sacred place. One made acceptable by God, by the regenerating power of the Spirit. And it's for this reason that he boasts in God's grace in verse 17. Which, by the way, is the only legitimate grounds for boasting. Now, the issue of a priest can be confusing to many. Hopefully I can explain it very briefly. Under the Old Covenant, there were men who were priests. There was a priesthood. They were men who guarded the covenant. They, uh, they taught God's precepts and law. They offered incense and sacrifices on God's altar. And they really served a dual mediatorial role. They looked toward God on behalf of the people, and they looked toward the people on behalf of God. But after Jesus made the final sacrifice and, re- and replaced the old covenant with the new, he became our perfect high priest, Hebrews 2.17. Believers no longer, therefore, have to go to a priest, to a human mediator between God and man. Because according to 1 Timothy 2.5, there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And now, as we look at Scripture, we learn that every believer is a priest under the, under the new covenant. We have direct access to our Heavenly Father. We can go to Him and enjoy sweet fellowship and communion. We are even commanded to come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And like Paul, when we bring others to Christ, you might say that we engage in a priestly function. Think of what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.5. As living stones... We are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he goes on, he says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. I want you to notice Paul also describes himself as a preacher. A preacher who boasted solely in the Lord, who called him, verse 17, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. My friends, this should humble every preacher of the gospel. We have no room for boasting. All that we are, all that we do, comes from the Lord. He alone gets the glory. 
Paul made this abundantly clear to his young protege, Timothy. He wanted him to understand this. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, he said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. John MacArthur has rightly said, quote, The people God uses to accomplish his will are his instruments. And no Christian should take personal credit for what God does through him. No brush takes credit for a masterpiece it was used to paint. No violin takes credit for the beautiful music the musician makes with it. Neither should a Christian deny or belittle what God has done through him, because that would be to deny and belittle God's own work. So God has bestowed upon every believer a spiritual gift or gifts, as the case may be. But how can you know what your spiritual gift is? By the fruit that it bears, by the affirmation of others, by the affirmation of how your life and service glorifies Christ. And Paul's gift of a preacher was validated in a very dramatic way in verse 19. He reminds them that it was validated in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, May I remind you that prior to the completion of the New Testament canon, in the days of the early church, God often used miraculous physical signs and wonders to authenticate both the message as well as the messenger of the gospel. In Mark 16, verse 20, we read that the apostles went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. But now that we have the full body of divine revelation, God no longer authenticates the message and the messenger with miraculous physical signs, but we do observe a wonderful, marvelous spiritual miracle. We see this all the time. And that is the miracle of regeneration, where sinners at enmity with God are transformed into saints who become His willing and loving slaves. Can there be any greater affirmation of ministry than seeing God cause a man to be born again? Paul goes on to describe his ministry, how he preached from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum. By the way, that would have been a region uh, that would cover about 1,400 square miles. Think of the western part of the Mississippi, or from the Mississippi all the way to the, um, all the way to California. By the way, as I think about it, the apostles and the others, my, they must have been some very um, stout men to be able to walk those great distances over their lifetime. But that was a region, my friends, where he suffered unimaginable hardship, persecution, ultimately gave his life for the gospel. But Paul was compelled to preach. In fact, he He told the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 9.16, I preach the gospel. I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 
for I do this voluntarily. And he went on to say, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So the Apostle Paul was the quintessential pioneer missionary, evangelist, and preacher, church planner. And although there's nothing wrong with building upon another man's ministry, that was not Paul's strategy. He would take the seeds of the gospel and spread it in a new area and then move on to the next. And he closes this section by saying in verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Quotation from Isaiah 52.15. Yet another attempt by the apostle to document the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the spread of the gospel to the non-Jewish world. I'm sure that this was a source of deep encouragement, especially to those early Gentile saints in Rome. It's certainly an encouragement to this Gentile saint in America some 2,000 years later. Dear Christian, I want you to examine your heart again as we leave this place today in light of these truths, in light of largely reminders that you already know, but that you've been reminded of again. Accept one another. Think of some way that you can welcome into your friendship, into your circle of fellowship, maybe someone with whom you have differed on something that really doesn't matter. Admonish one another. Perhaps there's someone in your life that you can think of right now that you need to come alongside and encourage and instruct and warn. Do that because you are equipped to do so. And remember what you know. Use every resource available to you to be reminded of the essential truths of the gospel and gospel living. Discipline your area in these realms. And may we, like Paul, be tireless in preaching the gospel of grace that many will be saved, be made acceptable by the power of his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths They speak so directly to our lives. Help us by your power to live consistently with them and to bear much fruit for the praise of your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.